Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm a little nervous to be up here talking from everyone, but Erin just reminded me this is a very grace-filled crowd, so I'm grateful for that. Um, so here we are, the last day of Wellspring. I can honestly say that I'm very sad today, as I've treasured this time of being fed with God's word and being strengthened by fellow believers. I have looked forward to all the lessons and the sweet fellowship in our discussion group, laughing, crying, sharing, um, sharing our praises and struggles and encouraging each other with God's word. God has used Wellspring this year to help me stay faithful to digging into his word when I felt weary, to convict me when I was lost in my sin, to humble me when I foolishly thought I had it all figured out and to spur me on in my walk with the Lord. I almost didn't do well spring this year. Last April, my mom was unexpectedly diagnosed with leukemia during a routine checkup. It took us all by surprise, as most trials do. My mom lived alone and I knew the bulk of her care would fall on myself and my siblings. I also knew pretty quickly it was going to be a very long road. Not knowing what that road would look like, I questioned if I had the ability to devote myself to Wellspring as well as my mother's care. After much prayer, I knew being surrounded by godly women and sitting under sound biblical teaching was exactly where I needed to be. I've taken Wellspring six or seven times. Do you know, Melissa, we started together. It's been a lot. Um, and each time, I have been in a different season of life. This season has been a uniquely painful one. This new world of walking my mom through a terminal cancer diagnosis was harder than I ever dreamed it would be. I stepped into it knowing and trusting what I believed about God, but my faith was tested in ways I didn't see coming. It was nine months of hospital and ER visits, rehab facilities, assisted living homes, doctor's appointments, chemo treatments, and many other meetings. Each day I was faced with hard decisions, frantic texts, and jumping to be where I was needed at a moment's notice. While it was an honor to care for my mom, I watched her suffer relentless pain and the loss of dignity as she had to rely on the assistance of her children and others as her body failed. Each day brought a new physical, mental, and emotional challenge. And each day was one step closer to saying goodbye. Those were steps I didn't want to have to take. But they were what the Lord had for me and for us. There were many tears of frustration exhaustion and grief but also gratitude and joy praise god my mom was a believer and we had many sweet conversations about trusting god with whatever he had in store for her living her last days for his glory and about her faith soon becoming sight and yet there was still great sorrow watching my mom's body fail watching her suffer and preparing for the end of life and loss that was to come it wasn't easy. As a matter of fact, it was really, really hard. I knew I firmly believed everything I was saying to my mom and preaching to my own heart, and that I trusted God fully, but my emotions didn't always line up to what I knew to be truth. In the difficult and unique, unexpected moments, I found my heart caving to fear and anxiety and my mind questioning, how are we going to get through this? And how are we going to get through this well? 
There were days I sat and looked at my Bible, not sure where to go, but knowing inside were the words that would give life to my weary soul. I knew this was the place that God wanted me to come to shepherd my heart faithfully. I'm thankful that through walking through the disciplines of Wellspring, I knew and trusted that going to God's word and shepherding my heart was an act of faithful obedience, even when my emotions clouded my mind and provided no stability. His word alone would ground me, comfort me, renew my soul, and remind me of his goodness and sovereignty daily. It would remind me of the joy found only in him and the amazing grace he bestowed on me. It would remind me of the gift of salvation, the treasure of our Savior, and the hope of heaven. He kindly continued to sustain and refine me daily, and he still does. My mom went to be with the Lord in January, and we were by her side. It was definitely a time of praising God for her homegoing, and I will never be more grateful than to know our eternity is secure with our gracious God and his atoning work on the cross. The hope we have in him transcends the grief and loss we endure in losing a loved one. And yet, as I remain in my mixed condition, not yet able to enjoy the fullness of my forever home with him, there have been moments of continued grief, lingering fears and anxieties, general heaviness and sadness. The past year, I have felt wrung out and weary. It has been a time of constant submission to trusting the Lord with all my heart. In the valley, I have for sure seen my propensity to fall into the sin of unbelief and wavering trust. In those moments, I have never been more keenly aware that it is not by my own strength and power that I choose to shepherd my heart, but by his grace alone. I know I'm not alone in walking through difficult trials. As a matter of fact, there are several friends in our discussion group that have lost loved ones just this year, and others who have continued to walk through various hardships. Living in a broken world, we know and expect we will endure trials. The simple yet powerful phrase that we as a discussion group have circled back to over and over again is, he is worth it. Every time I have been afraid, discouraged, or overwhelmed, I know right where I'm supposed to bring my heart because he is worth it. He is worth trusting and obeying. Praise God, he is bigger than all my doubts and fears. He is faithful and merciful. He is good and sovereign. He is my creator, my redeemer, my savior. He is Lord and he alone is worthy of all praise and honor and my humble submission to his will in every season and every situation. These truths I know and cling to, and this is why we are constantly encouraged through Wellspring to be disciplined in bringing our hearts our minds and our emotions up under the anchor and authority of God's word. So with that, let's go ahead and get your notebooks out and turn over to the Wellspring Disciplines. And I thought this last time, um, I have them written here. It would be good to just read them out loud together. You might have them memorized, which would be great. <laughs> I'm going to read mine so I don't mess it up. So let's just start with the first one. Discipline one. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. So the faithful woman of God brings her heart to God's word, to the gospel, faithfully, as an act of worship. 
and this is done through all seasons of life, on the mountaintop and in the valley. All right, let's read discipline two. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. I was only able to minister to my mom and to others in my family well during a very difficult season if I was consistently and faithfully bringing my own heart to God's word. We could remember God's truths together and trust in his good and perfect plan, drawing near to him through his word with grateful hearts. When I wasn't shepherding my heart well, my ability to proclaim God's word and minister to my family was affected. Shepherding your own heart allows you to minister to your family with your heart fixed on him and his word. Discipline three. With a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church in every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. When we are faithfully shepherding our own hearts, and attending to the hearts of the family the Lord has given us, we're able to then minister to others in our bigger family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're able to come beside others and walk with them through whatever season of life they may be in, as God's word is always faithful, true, and profitable for his good purposes. So when we strive to live gospel-transformed lives by shepherding our hearts well, reading God's word and building our homes with scripture, practicing the one another's, walking in repentance, fighting pride and desiring humility, relying on the authority of scripture to inform us, cultivating a life of prayer, seeking wisdom and discernment, trusting God's promises and ministering to others, fighting hard-heartedness, we do so because he is worth it, and we aim to proclaim the glory of God. As we head into summer, I would encourage you to not let the change in routine or lack of structure impede you from being devoted to spending time in God's word. I encourage you to keep up with your reading plan, to set aside time for prayer, and to continue to shepherd your heart well. Some days we run to God's word excited and eager for time with him. And honestly, some days we stumble there, tired, distracted, struggling, and weary. In those moments, we seek him diligently out of obedience, because he alone is worth our faithful devotion. What joy and hope we have in our merciful God. What a kindness that he provides us with his word. As Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light to my path. We don't always know what that path will look like. But we know we don't walk alone in darkness or fear of what is around the corner. We faithfully and humbly bring our hearts to him, and we faithfully and humbly submit to his will as we come to the source of all we need for life and godliness. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read and close in a prayer. I don't know if any of you have this book, The Valley Vision. It is wonderful. It's old Puritan prayers, um, so you'll see the language is a little different. But I just love, love, love this book. If you don't have it, I highly recommend that you get it. So I'm going to close this in a word of prayer and just pray straight from this. And this is titled, God Enjoyed. You bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, thou incomprehensible 
but prayer hearing God, known but beyond knowledge, revealed but unrevealed. My wants and welfare draw me to thee, for thou hast set, never said, Seek ye me in vain. To thee I come in my difficulties, necessities, distresses. Possess me with thyself, with a spirit of grace and supplication, with a prayerful attitude of mind, with access into warmth of fellowship, so that in the ordinary concerns of life my thoughts and desires may rise to thee, and in habitual devotion I may find a resource that will soothe my sorrows, sanctify my successes, and qualify me in all ways for dealings with my fellow men. I bless thee that thou hast made me capable of knowing thee, the author of all being, of resembling thee, the perfection of all excellency, of enjoying thee, the source of all happiness. O oh God, attend me in every part of my arduous and trying pilgrimage. I need the same counsel, defense, comfort I found at my beginning. Let my religion be more obvious to my conscience, more peaceable to those around. While Jesus is representing me in heaven, may I reflect him on earth. While he pleads my cause, may I show forth his praise. Continue the gentleness of thy goodness toward me, and whether I wake or sleep, let thy presence go with me, thy blessing attend me. Thou hast led me on, and I have found thy promises true. I have been sorrowful, but thou hast been my help, fearful, but thou hast delivered me, despairing, but thou hast lifted me up. Thy vows are ever upon me, and I praise thee, thee O God. Amen. Thank you, Julie. What a what a beautiful picture of faith is on display there, as uh, Julie just boasts in Christ. He is worth it. He is worth it. Um, we see faith. Holy Spirit wrought faith in a heart, in a life, in a dark valley. Uh, we we confuse the idea of faith when we think along the world's lines. If I just have enough faith, then my life will go well. Um, no, when when we endure what God has for us in a fallen world under His curse, what does it mean to cling to Him? And what He produces in the heart is is beautiful. Um, and worth it. Thank you for opening our time, Julie, and opening your heart and life. Appreciate that. This morning's message is entitled Cardiosclerosis. And you already know some Greek words. Uh, we get our word cardia, uh, or the Greek word cardia means heart. Uh, you can hear that in words like cardiac. Um, and then sclerosis, you've, you've heard sclerosis of the liver is a hardening of the liver. Arteriosclerosis is the hardening of arteries. Cardiosclerosis is the medical condition of a hardened heart. Uh, it is a process medically defined as induration, um, which is an increase of fibrous elements in otherwise soft tissue that creates muscle tissue like the physical heart unfunctioning 
it just becomes physically hardened and unable to pump blood in the way that is so vital to a human body. The Greek word um, sclerocardia is in our New Testament. It is the noun form of this hardening of the heart. And it's not used as a medical terminology, but as a metaphor for our inner man, for our spirits, for our hearts, uh, spiritually speaking. And we're talking about hardness of heart this morning, uh, just as another check. Uh, What it means to shepherd our hearts in part means to be wary of hardening tendencies at the spiritual level. We all face them. Uh, We uh, encounter temptations. We encounter trials. We encounter external influences and internal tendencies, which all contribute to hardness of heart. The end results of hardness of heart are catastrophic. They're eternal. Uh, Hardness of heart ends in apostasy, away from the things of the Lord, and Any deviation from faithfulness to the Lord is the highway called hardness of heart leading to apostasy. So this issue is of grave concern for all of us in a mixed condition that have the residue of our natural depravity. uh, We need to be aware. Scripture is replete with warnings and descriptions of hard heartedness. Uh, You've got a lot of passages in your notes. I put everything I'm going to talk about in your notes today so you can look at these passages. We may not get to looking at all of these, but I wanted you to have them. I do want to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 3 as we begin. And as you're turning there, the the noun form sclerocardia uh, is found in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10 and Mark 16. It is an unyielding frame of mind and hardness of heart. You can have a hard heart. Um, Romans 2 uses the word as an adjective. Um, And then what we're looking at right now, Hebrews 3 and other places, uses this word as a verb to harden the heart or to have your heart hardened. Listen to the warning in Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. This idea of a hard heart is a fundamental human problem. We go back to the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, he describes the promise of a new covenant reality, the new covenant promised to Israel, whereby God would circumcise their uncircumcised hearts, or in Ezekiel's language, God would take out a stony heart and replace it with a fleshy heart, a soft heart. And in Ezekiel 36, interestingly, in verse 26, we have this promise of a soft heart replacing a hard heart. And tied to that soft heart is a response of life called obedience. 
Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And if you keep reading in Ezekiel 36, you find out this is a specific promise to Israel that would come not just with the spiritual blessings, but with the material blessings of living in the land and benefiting from God's covenant promises to them. Now, is it right for believers in the New Testament era for the church, Jew, Gentile, together in one body, not living in the land, to look at these promises of a new covenant reality given to Israel? And I would say, yes, we can appreciate the spiritual benefits of the new covenant, even while we're not the direct recipients of Israel's fullness of fulfillment of new covenant promises. Gentiles are ingrafted branches. And when Jesus lifted up the cup and said, this is the cup in my name, it is the cup of the new covenant. He is inaugurating spiritual benefits of the new covenant as a preview of all the physical benefits that he promised. And we Gentiles, strangely enough, get grafted into these realities. And you know this, if the demand of God is that we have soft hearts toward him, and you recognize that producing a soft heart from stone is humanly impossible, but requires a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, you understand that the entrance point into the Christian life is one of receiving something from God you could not produce on your own, something you did not have inherently. And that is a heart disposed towards him. This new heart is a gift, and in our present condition, it is also mixed. Because that new reality is combined, as we talked about earlier this year, with the residual realities of your sin that has not been fully eradicated. And so there's a war on the inside. And what does it mean for the new covenant spiritual realities that God has placed in the heart to be at war within you with residual human depravity? That means we have to be wary of our hearts. It's why God's uh, wisdom literature toward people who love him by faith is don't trust your heart. Don't trust your heart. Don't trust your heart. And you can read the book of Proverbs to see that over and over again. So this morning, I want to talk to you about the dangers of hard-heartedness. I want to talk to you about the causes of hard-heartedness and the remedies. That's our outline for this morning. First, let's look at the dangers of hard-heartedness. And I've just given you seven here. Uh, There perhaps could be more. Uh, But the first is a weakened conscience. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. The first danger we could see of hard-heartedness is a weakened conscience. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.19, he encourages Timothy to fight the good fight, keeping faith and keeping a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. When we allow our hearts to harbor hardness. It produces a a damaged conscience. And when we walk away from a good conscience, that is a, a softness towards God, a sensitivity towards what he demands, 
the end result of that is a shipwrecked faith. And what does a good conscience require? It requires keeping. This is a keeping of the heart. The conscience is that spiritual organ in the human constitution that tells us what is right and wrong. It's a warning system. And when you violate your conscience, uh, the warnings go off. You can tell those warnings to be quiet. You can rewrite your conscience to believe that what is right is wrong and what is wrong is right. But a believer bringing her conscience before the word of God is perpetually bringing her conscience into conformity with God's standards and strengthening that warning system. But watch out when you dull your conscience, the warning bells go off. Oh, I shouldn't do this. Here's a line I shouldn't cross. Here's some uh, proclivity of sin, sinful thought, uh, something that displeases the Lord at the heart level. It's okay for now. Cross that line. Dull your conscience. Be aware, friend. The end of that road is a shipwrecked faith. That's a severe danger of hard-heartedness. Second danger we could look at is a weakened witness. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. In verse 9... Paul begins some instructions to Titus about how to instruct believers on Crete in the church. He says, Urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And there what's on display is a, the, an adorning of the gospel. That is, obedient Christian living makes the gospel not look bad before a watching world. That is, it is a living display of the transforming power of God's grace. God's grace teaches us to deny ungodliness. And when our hearts get hard and we are no longer yielding ourselves in faith, which results in obeying what God says it actually besmirches the gospel we profess. So for all our, our love of, of loving the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, wanting others to know and see and believe the gospel which has transformed us and the wonderful grace of God which forgives our sin, that grace also teaches us to deny ungodliness, which itself is a proclamation of the power of God's grace. And a hardened heart clouds over that power in our witness. A third danger of hard-heartedness is a weakened church. Don't ever think, Christian, that the Christian life is lived on your own, and what you do when no one's looking only affects you. Ephesians 4.16, this principle that the whole body causes the growth of the body is important for us to understand. At our own heart level, individual heart level before the Lord, how does my shepherding of my heart affect the body of Christ. Uh, with your eyes on Ephesians 4.16, notice the whole body is the subject, 
causes the growth of the body. Causes the growth is the verb. And in between that, we have a couple of phrases. How does the whole body cause the growth of the body? First of all, being fitted and held together by every joint of the supply. Uh, that is the, the, the place where believers get together creates an energizing effect that brings about the growth of the whole body. Believers have to be together. And the togetherness of believers actually is the joining of members, the joints, as it were, that produces the supply for growth. It's, a, it's an interesting metaphor. We think about uh, how does a body grow? Drink milk, right? But in, in terms of the metaphor of the spiritual body of Christ, the growth happens as believers are together. And a, and a believer brings uh, two spiritual growth component and another believer brings two spiritual growth component they get together and it doesn't equal four it equals six or eight or twelve because that is how god has designed christians to grow to grow in interdependent connectedness in the body of christ it's why when you separate yourself from the body of christ your spiritual life is sapped and you rob the church of its collective growth so there is an individual responsibility for the growth of the whole body. But notice the second part of this, and this gets at hard-heartedness, according to the proper working of each individual part. So it's not just that we be together that causes the growth, but properly working individual parts, being together, rubbing off on one another, causes the growth of the body. So what happens when your heart gets hard? And then you interact with others in the body of Christ. You actually are stunting the growth of the whole to the degree that your heart is not prepared to have a spiritual benefit to those around you. Hard-heartedness means you clam up when you should speak up. Hard-heartedness means you don't speak to issues that you yourself won't let go of. You're, you're, you're not, you don't have the ability to address idolatries or uh, weaknesses in someone else in love uh, when you yourself are holding on tightly to something that displeases the Lord. Or worse, you're holding on tightly to something that displeases the Lord and you hypocritically address somebody not in kindness on the same issue. And both of those bring damage to the body. So the proper working of each individual part and then those parts coming together produces the growth of the whole. Uh, Hard-heartedness brings about a weak church. And that's an interesting uh, dynamic. Individual hard-heartedness weakens the collective body of Christ. A fourth danger is decreased personal delight in Jesus. Turn to John 14. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples in the upper room. He is about to leave them. He is giving them assurances that he will not leave them as orphans, but he is going to send the helper. And it's good that he goes away. This would be a very emotional setting. And in verse 21, Jesus gives his disciples this instruction. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Right? This is why we don't pit loving Christ against obedience to Christ. There's an equal sign here in Jesus' equation. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. 
oftentimes uh, Christians are looking for experiences, spiritual experiences to sort of fuel the Christian life and get me through. And we have a number of mechanisms where we try to get these experiences. Can I go to church and have a, a really loud, wonderful set of music with a bunch of people singing at the top of their lungs? It's an experience. And man, that can get me through the week. It was an emotional high. Um, but here, this experience of Jesus that Jesus personally discloses himself to his disciples in greater measure so that they experience the personal love of Jesus and the personal love of the Father comes how? If you love me, how did Jesus justify in this verse loving him? Having and keeping his commands. So what that means for hard-heartedness is if I harden my heart against God. There's this area he can't touch. I'm just going to let that fibrous tissue grow so that that, what, that portion of my heart, which should be soft and pliable before him, I'm not going to let him touch. I'm just going to let that little part get hard. You actually decrease your experience of the love of God and the personal experiential love of Christ. Jesus promised to disclose himself in increasing measure when we love him, that is when we obey him. Another way to say that is when we keep our hearts soft toward him. Another danger of hard-heartedness is a faltering assurance. Turn to Romans 8. John Anderson was just talking about this in Equipping Hour. I encourage you to listen to that message. It's specifically addressing parents helping their kids think through the issues of assurance of salvation. How do you do that? How do you not just declare your kids to be Christians and give them mommy and daddy's assurance? But how do you help kids? And then John was being really sneaky. He was really talking to all of us. How do we all think through biblical assurance? And, and Romans 8 is an important factor in that. Uh, listen to Romans 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are being led by the spirit of God. These are sons of God. You want to know that you're a son or a daughter of God? You must be one who is being led by the Spirit. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Uh, some mysterious, uh, mystical direction about what shirt should I put on and what college should I attend? And I'm going to hear a voice from God. No, what is it in this verse? Being led by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. To make war on residual depravity. That's what the Holy Spirit leads believers to do in this text that then gives assurance that they are indeed sons, daughters of God, and they cry out to him, Abba, Father. The presence of the Spirit doing things only the Spirit can do in the heart of a child of God gives a child of God assurance that he or she truly is God's child. What does hard-heartedness do? It actually removes from a believer assurance of salvation. Now, it's important to recognize that eternal security and assurance of salvation are two different things. Someone can be eternally secure, bought by the blood of Christ, and not feel like it. Right? Feeling like it is the subjective assurance that I am saved. And subjective assurance cannot be had when I'm holding on to sin. 
assurance, love of the Father being disclosed to me, Jesus disclosing himself to me in greater measure, being led by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body, the Spirit evidently doing things in my life only he can do, gives assurance. The subjective impression that, yes, I am secure in Christ. And listen, assurance of salvation comes and goes. It's subjective. You're not guaranteed it, except in soft-hearted obedience tracking with the Lord. Then God gives it. He promises to give it. So when there's hard-heartedness there, assurance of salvation falters. A sixth danger, Galatians chapter 6, is a vicious cycle. A vicious cycle. Hard-heartedness begets hard-heartedness. This is the real danger in saying, later, uh, tomorrow, God, I'll, I'll take care of that. I noticed it. Um, circumstances happened in my life and it allowed me to pull my beating heart out of my chest and watch it pump and I notice, oh, there's some fibrous tissue there. I'll take care of that later. Um, here's the danger. Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So you have to cultivate faithfulness at the heart level like a farmer cultivates crops. There's a putting seed in the ground and watering and waiting. If we think that we can overturn 10 years of bad and wrong heart patterns in one moment of, oh, I'm going to replace 10 years of, of wrong thinking with the truth. Be prepared for the hard work of waiting. <laughs> Sow that seed of righteousness and in due time you will reap. Don't grow weary in it. Recognize what hard-heartedness over time does. It produces more crop of hard-heartedness, right? You let something go, you are actually sowing to the flesh what does that produce? Um, more weeds that then cast seeds for more production to the flesh. And you, I, you've seen this in your lives. Um, in walking the Christian life, you know that, that when you have felt hard-hearted and you said, ah, I don't really want to take care of that. That seems like a lot of work. And you find out weeks and months and even years down the road that you've created much more work for yourself than not taking care of it when it was small. That's a real danger of hard-heartedness. It's just a vicious cycle of more hard-heartedness. Hebrews 12.1 talks about the entangling nature of sin. Listen, you, you let it grow wild and there are more tangles. And then the very sobering danger, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, is apostasy. All of these things are the pathway to apostasy. They are the highway to hell. And apostasy is a, a very real danger for those who profess Christ. First John 2 will tell us those who went out from us were never of us and they went out from us to demonstrate that they were not of us for if they were of us they would have stayed with us rather than going out from us. That tongue twister that explains to John's readers why do some people say they love Christ look like they love Christ sound like they love Christ and then walk away. That breaks the heart and it makes me say is it I Lord? Right? Now, I just told you that those who are bought by the blood of Christ are eternally secure. 
and apostasy is a real New Testament doctrine. How do these things fit together? Not everybody who claims to be in Christ or even thinks that she is in Christ is truly in Christ. And time reveals some of these things. Situations reveal. Uh, Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. How anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace? We know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. We're described to you how this happens particularly for people who are under good teaching, who know the gospel, who articulate the gospel, who preach the gospel to others, who even see others come to genuine faith under their ministries and yet walk away from the faith altogether. And that's happened in this church. How does it happen? A little bit of hardness of heart. You say, God can't touch that. And, and other people see it, it starts to leak out in ways that others experience, and they start to poke at it and say, hey, can I ask you about that little cardiosclerosis that's sticking out? No. Uh, someone else, can you come with me? Can we help this brother see? No, no. And you stiff-arm God, and you stiff-arm the church, and you stiff-arm the remedies we'll talk about in a few moments. And... You have gone through the motions of, okay, I sinned, and I don't really want to let go of the sin, but I know if I just preach the gospel to myself, uh, then everything's going to be good. I can salve my conscience, and I can still hold on to my sin. Now, part of preaching the gospel to yourself is turning from the sin and turning to righteousness. Allowing grace to teach me to deny ungodliness, as we just read in Titus. Merely hitting the reset button on my justification, to use one author's language, does not prevent hard-heartedness. It may actually provoke it. It may actually increase it. Well, all I need to do to think about is that, look, I sinned, and Jesus never did, and he always obeyed, and he did it in my place, so I don't have to. Well, now you've got gospel camouflage for hard-heartedness. And what eventually happens when you do that is you will start to say, man, this sin that I keep committing, it has consequences, it has ramifications I don't like, it's embarrassing, maybe I got caught, and I kept preaching the gospel to myself, but nothing changed. Now what do you say? The gospel doesn't work. And you stop even reflecting on the gospel itself. The Bible doesn't work. The church doesn't work. Christians are all judgmental. Been there, done that. Apostasy, done. It's actually an easy path. It's the path your heart already inclines to all the time. Grab the wheel with both hands. Don't let it swerve into oncoming traffic. That's your heart. Be wary. Be aware of the dangers of apostasy. What is the warning here? 
Be careful that you do not drift away, but pay much closer attention to what you have heard. The writer of Hebrews says. Let's talk about some of the causes of hard-heartedness. First of all, neglect. Neglect. This is the natural tendency of our hearts. Um, There is a connection between unbelief and sin. Right? Every time I sin, uh, I am saying something about what I believe. God, I don't believe you're enough for me. I think I can get from this sin what you don't seem fit to provide for me right in this moment. Um, I don't believe God's warnings about the dangers of the sin. I, I don't believe God's warnings about sowing seeds to the flesh and the consequences of it. Um, at whatever level, every sin relates to the sin of unbelief. Look at Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, uh, that is, um, all that he has provided by his glory and excellence, he has granted to us precious promises, precious and magnificent promises, so that by them, by those promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world by lust. Now for this very reason, on the basis of all the promises and the glory of God, apply all diligence in your faith. Supply moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Do you feel the the weight of the natural tendency of our hearts? What's required is faith producing a diligent pursuit of what God makes available. For believers in obedience. A second cause of hard heartedness is false teaching. Also in Second Peter, next chapter, chapter two, beginning in verse seventeen, Peter describes false teachers as springs without water, mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. These are hell bound, church going influencers. They speak out arrogant words of vanity and they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state becomes worse for them than the first. It would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment happened to them. It's a terrifying reality that people armed with truth in the church, overcome by their own enslavement to sin, would seek to entice others. Now, why do false teachers like to drag people along to their own destruction? Uh, any number of reasons. I think they want to salve for their own conscience. And as Romans 1 describes at the end of Romans 1, they long for the approval of others. 
right? If, if the Christian community can approve of my hard-heartedness, I can feel better about it. So watch out for those who affirm you in hard-hearted tendencies. That's not a help. Make friends with those who will help you see cardiosclerosis. Those are your best friends in the Christian life. Those who are close enough to see and ask good questions. A third cause is weak teaching. Weak teaching. You may have heard it said that soft preaching produces hard hearts and hard preaching produces soft hearts. Uh, there's a truth in that. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says to Timothy, as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies that give rise to mere speculation rather than the furthering of the administration of God, which is by faith. The goal of our instruction is love. How is that love described? Three ways. Love from a pure heart, love from a good conscience, and love from a sincere faith. Some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. There are many teachers. James said, let not many of you become teachers, my brother, and you'll incur a stricter judgment. And there's a wide variety of teaching in the church today, some of which is not heresy, but just strange, different than the scriptures. Uh, the ideas and thoughts of men. And it does not have the power to soften the heart. Think about what the Word of God is, Hebrews 4.12. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to discern the thoughts, able to differentiate down at the very heart level the thoughts and the motives of the heart of man. Nothing else has that power. No creed, no systematic theology textbook, no really good resource, not the Chronicles of Narnia. I mean, none, none of those things have that power. Not, not the songs we sing that are written by men, but the words of God have that power. And where any other human resource reflects accurately the words of God, it, it carries along that power. But the word of God alone is able to actually transform and to soften the heart. So weak teaching robs the church of those things which produce soft hearts. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to see the connection between apostasy and fellowship. A lack of fellowship is a cause of hard-heartedness. I read to you the apostasy warning beginning in verse 26. If we go on, sinful, uh, if we go on sinning willfully, uh, there's no further expectation except divine fury. But notice verse 26 starts with a little preposition, I mean, a little conjunction, the word for. That's a subordinating conjunction. It's subordinating verse 26 and following to what went before. What went before? Verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Those are your classic, you got to go to church verses, right? Got to go to church. Why? Hebrews 10. But notice the connection. The fellowship is so critical because apostasy. 
Don't separate those. There's a chapter head or there's a, a, a segment heading in my Bible between verses 25 and 26. Take that out. Notice the subordinating conjunction. Keep them together. Christians need to be together for apostasy. To prevent drifting away. To prevent coming under the just fury of God and eternal destruction. You know this about the church. Absence does not always make the heart grow fonder. If your heart is fond and you're necessarily separated from the church, um, you're, you're stayed at home from some health emergency, or you've moved to Papua New Guinea to plant a church where there is none, and you're separated in that way, oh, the heart gets fond. But hard-heartedness and drift does not produce a longing to be with God's people. It only produces more hard-heartedness. Rejecting the truth is another cause of hard-heartedness. Acts 19.9 This is the very real danger with open Bibles, sitting under preaching, sitting under good teaching, going to small group, uh, having family devotions. Paul entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, notice the connection between hardness of heart and disobedience, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples. What happens there? A rejection of the truth. Look, you, you, you can't give God the face palm is that right? Is that what that's called? All of a sudden that didn't sound right. What is it? Face palm. That's face palm. What do you call this? Stiff arm. Yeah, stiff arm. Sorry, I've, I lost the colloquialism. That has a name. Um, you tell God to go away. God says something clearly and you say, I do not accept what God says. The reality is God may give you over to more darkness. You say you want darkness, God may give you blindness. You say you don't want to hear, God may cause you to be deaf altogether, spiritually speaking. This is a biblical doctrine of judicial hardening. Right? This is why Jesus spoke in parables from Matthew 13 forward. In Matthew 12, the religious leadership said, Oh, Jesus is doing miracles by the power of Satan. They were blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, Okay, from now on, everything public is going to be in parables. And he explains to his disciples why. So that hearing, they will not hear. And then he explained the meanings of the parables in private to his disciples. You want to stop listening to God's word? God may let you stop listening to God's word and reinforce that. That is a tragic danger that you may get what you ask for from the Lord. And then number six, another cause of hard-heartedness is just simply disobedience, sin of any sort. Go back to Hebrews 3, where we began this morning. Verse 12, take care, brethren, that there is not in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Any unchecked sin produces a little bit of cardiosclerosis. Stay on short accounts with the Lord. It's one of the reasons we love proclaiming Jesus' death in the Lord's table every Sunday that we gather. 
That's not a biblical command. That's just a preference at Grace Bible Church. We love to do that. It's a corporate check on unchecked sin. And there ought to be daily checks in your own heart on sin. Stay on short accounts with him. Let me give you some of the remedies for hard-heartedness. First of all, individual remedies. You know these. Um, Read your Bible and pray. Get close to the Lord. Shepherd your heart to the Word of God to meet with Him. To know Him. To hear from Him. Pour out your heart daily, hourly, moment by moment in prayer. A life of walking, living, breathing prayer. At some point, just do a survey of your Bible. As you're reading through the Bible in a year, um, notice every prayer in the Bible. Notice every command to pray, every example of prayer. Just do a self-study on what it means as a habit of life to cry out, help. That's the language of prayer. I need you. What does it mean to live a life of dependence upon him? That is a remedy for hard-heartedness. A regular check that... I'm going to go to the Lord. I'm going to talk to him. I need him moment by moment. And regular intake, reading, meditation, memorization, listening to sermons, etc. Just tuck away Psalm 1 in your heart. Does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law he meditates day and night. Those are the biblically prescribed individual remedies for hard-heartedness. There are corporate remedies. Uh, we talked about Hebrews 10. Assembling together is a corporate remedy. We, we get together and like uh, coals or embers, burning embers in a fire, when they're separated out, they start to die out and they don't flame. You put embers together, all of a sudden the flame rises up again. That happens for us when we gather. What a joy it is to gather with God's people. To, to come from a, a world of busyness and craziness and, and for many inundated in the things of the world, surrounded by people who think contrary to Christ, and then to get together with people who love Christ all over again, week in, week out. Being with believers is a huge remedy against hard-heartedness. Being shepherded, that is qualified shepherds, shepherding sheep and it means being around sheep and being a sheep who are willing to be shepherded the twin sides of the coin in hebrews 13 17 submit to your elders Um, and elders you're the ones who give account to the lord for the care of souls at an individual level Uh, the second half of that verse is really terrifying for your pastors Um, and and it's heavy so be a sheep eager to be shepherded it is a remedy for hard-heartedness by the way when when loving shepherding steps into your life and asks a hard challenging question about something you don't want to let go the temptation is ooh i don't want shepherding i don't like that i don't want meddling uh i'm i'm going to handle this on my own i'm going to go somewhere else that never goes well that never goes well um Recognize that tendency in your heart to isolate and let the warning signs go off. I want to isolate right now. I don't want to be around Christians. I don't want to be around pastors. I don't want to be around my small group leader. I'm not going to Wellspring. You're here, so. Watch that tendency to isolate. It's also incumbent upon pastors to run out false teachers, to identify wolves, 
remove them from God's precious sheep. There's another corporate remedy is Galatians 6.1. I want you to turn there and see this. I think this helps our mindset. Um, If some of you are tempted to think, I have the spiritual gift of admonition. I have the spiritual gift of confrontation. It's my favorite thing to do. I can't wait to find somebody's sin, and I'm going to point it out because that's how God's gifted me. Um, Let's just soak in Galatians 6.1 a little bit together, shall we? Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Put all of those things together when you think about if anyone is caught in a trespass. I think we're tempted to to think caught in a trespass means, aha, I caught you. I saw it. Now I've got you. That's not what caught means here. The, The word for caught in this text is the idea of somebody stuck in a trap. Think La Brea Tar Pits. If you've ever actually been to the La Brea Tar Pits, you'd be disappointed. Um, I think about these bubbling oil fields where the saber-toothed tigers are just stuck in there and trying to get out. It's just a tiny little museum in downtown LA, surrounded by concrete. At any rate, um, I grew up on Warner Brothers cartoons, so I had high expectations for the La Brea Tar Pits. But think about a bear trap in the forest, one of those great big steel bear traps. You step on the plate and traps it. What, what would it be like for a human to step into one of those things and have a femur snapped in half, compound fracture, bone protruding, and blood everywhere, and just your friend is groaning in the woods. Help! What would it be like to come upon that scene? You, you hear the sounds of agony. You come around the corner on the trail, and there's your friend whom you love caught in a trespass, in a bear trap. And there's pain and blood and agony and consequence. What do you do? You, you get in there with your, your hands and you, you, you pry this thing open. You who are spiritual, working hard not to be tempted, either tempted by the same bear trap, oh, I want to get in there too, it looks like fun, or tempted to judge. And, and you pry that thing open and, and you get your friend out of there and you mend the wounds and you get them care quick. That's what this means. With the heart of restore such a one with gentleness. How tender would you be with your friend in that situation? That's how we ought to be with one another. That is a beautiful remedy, God's design for hard-heartedness. Another corporate remedy is the church discipline process, Matthew 18. Your brother sins, go to him in private. And if he turns, you've won your brother. It's over. If he refuses, take two or three witnesses so that every fact may be established. Why is that? Um, So that you're not being unspiritual and ungentle and wrongly accusing your brother of something that's preferential and not sin. And so that others can be witness to your brother's hard-heartedness if it's there. And if he refuses to listen to the witnesses, you tell it to the church. 
if he stiff arms the church? You remove. That is God's remedy corporately against hard heartedness. Paul says of such a one, I've handed him over to Satan so his flesh would be sifted. Paul's confidence there is a believer. The goal is still restoration. What would it look like to have a step five in church discipline where somebody who is removed from fellowship feels the pangs of being removed from the sweetness of fellowship with the body of Christ is, is panged of conscience and tortured in a spiritual wilderness and sees the world and sees the deceptions of Satan and comes back and is restored. That's a party. That's a celebration. We, we get what God prescribed and what we've all been longing for and praying for. What a joy that would be. That's God's remedy. Those are the corporate remedies and the individual remedies. Of course, all of those are God's prescribed remedies. If we look down at some more divine remedies, aside from his means of using humans, God personally brings about discipline. Hebrews 12. We won't read it now, but that's the, that's the passage on fatherly discipline. It seems onerous in the moment, and yet it brings about the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God disciplines those whom he loves. You can experience discipline in the Christian life personally from God, your father, when there's hard-heartedness. Why? Because he wants to rescue you from what you would do with yourself. It's a good question to ask. Um, is there fatherly discipline happening in my life? If circumstances are difficult for you right now and, and it's hard to wait on the Lord and hard to trust the Lord, it's not a bad thing to ask. Is there something I can repent from? Is there something I can turn from? It, God may just be wanting to loosen my white knuckle grip on something I'm holding too tightly. And God is kind and he loves us in that. Another divine remedy is the warning passages. I've given you the list of them there in your notes. Those warning passages are God's means of keeping Christians secure. They are God's means of keeping Christians secure. You read Hebrews 3, you read Hebrews 6, you read Hebrews 10. By the way, the whole letter to the Hebrews is a giant warning passage. Don't walk away from Christ, because if you walk away from him, there's nothing else. He's better than everything you're tempted to go back to. He's better than the comfort you would get if you rejected him. There's a significant context in the first century before AD 70 that's critical for the first readers of Hebrews. But the principle for us is, man, you're tempted to go back to something because it looks comfortable. But to leave Christ for it means you end up with nothing. That's God's means of keeping Christians close to him. Heed the warning passage. You say, well, I believe in eternal security. Yeah, good. God keeps those who are his own close to him through those warning passages. So read them and let them shape your heart. There's another divine means. This one's in 1 Corinthians 11. And it is death. Uh, there, Paul is describing those who have fallen asleep. Uh, that is a New Testament description of the death of saints. That's never used of the death of unbelievers. It's only used of the of the homegoing of believers. But in 1 Corinthians 11, it is describing those who were mistreating the body of Christ, the corporate gathering, specifically at the Lord's table. Many are sick and some have already fallen asleep. That is, the Lord took some saints home who had not repented. God can use physical death as a means of 
keeping his saints secure. Why? Because what is the pathway? Apostasy, unchecked sin, could lead you to eternal destruction. So in order to keep his own, God may discipline so severely that he takes you home before you would become apostate. It's a biblical reality. Now, I don't think we could ever know when God is doing that. Right? The, the goal in that, we, what we do know is it did happen with Corinthian believers. And if Ananias and Sapphira were born again, it happened with them as well in Acts 5. I don't know that we could make a positive case for anyone in this life that we could say, oh, that's what God was doing with so-and-so. But maybe God has clearly done that. What do the wellspring disciplines mean for all of this? Um, keep reading them, memorize them, do them. Yeah. Keep a soft heart before the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these women. I thank you for their eagerness to uh, use wellspring this year as a means to tracking with you well, to being examiners and shepherds and keepers and guardians, informers of their own hearts. And that the heart shepherding that is encouraged uh, would flow out into homes and flow out in ministries in this church and beyond the walls of this church to a world that desperately needs Christ, the transforming power of the grace of the gospel. God, we pray that you will cause what has been learned here, what has uh, been practiced here to overflow into life. God, we pray that we would never rest in these disciplines and simultaneously, God, would you give us rest in them as we find our rest, our faith, our confidence, our trust in you who powerfully work in us to will and do according to your good pleasure. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name.